Christ is risen. Amen. Come on. There we go. Strange, strange slide for, for Easter, I admit. Uh, on an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond several years ago now, the whole family decides to go to Catholic Church for Easter. And if you know the show, you know that most of the Barone family are practicing Catholics, uh, if somewhat disgruntled in some ways. And, uh, but the extended family, that's not the case. Ray's older brother Robert is married to Amy, and Amy's family comes from a very stereotypical Protestant uh, background, evangelical background, born-again kind of thing. It's, uh, uh, they really don't know what to do with the Catholic Church. But in this episode, they decide to all go to Catholic Mass for Easter, and after the service is over, they're, they're coming back from the service. They walk in the front door, and Amy's father, pray, played by the late Fred Willard, says, that was a fine sermon by the priest this morning. And then he pauses and he says, of course, the resurrection is a difficult thing to botch. And I would agree, the resurrection is a difficult thing to botch. Now, if you've been here for a while and you have your thinking caps on, you're saying, oh, Pastor Stacy, you've told that joke already. You said it several Easter's ago. Does anybody remember that? Does anybody remember that? Oh, I should have kept my mouth shut. Good. <laughs> but the reason I tell you that now is because it turns out that I have something in common um, I think it's possible to botch the resurrection a bit. I did it almost last year. Here's what happened. Last year, we were not meeting in person at Easter as we'd hoped we'd be able to. We were not even live streaming. We were pre-producing all the video ahead of time and then launching it on Sunday morning as a video. And uh, I peppered my sermon for Easter that morning as I always do with the uh, same refrain that we, you've already taken part in a few times, uh, the liturgical response Christ is risen. Right, you, you know it. And I, that, that particular Holy Week, though, was really stressful, really busy. We had to produce a whole lot of video for that week. It was exhausting. We did Monday, Thursday. We did Good Friday. We did Easter morning. Then we did several things during the, the days for the kids throughout the week. It was exhausting and stressful. And in my preparation, I missed something. I had an unfortunate typo. When it came time to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ, I said, Chris is risen. <laughs> I mean, that's even worse than a botched confetti cannon, don't you think? Chris. My favorite comment that day was from Greg Lauk in the comments. He wrote, way to go, Chris. Way to go, Chris. Can you imagine a worse word on a worst time, on the worst moment ever to botch than this one. Chris is risen. And now it lives there on YouTube forever. The reality is I don't think that we botched the resurrection. I think it's impossible to botch the resurrection to some degree. It happened, even if you don't believe in it, it happened, it made a difference then, it continues to make a difference now. And so we celebrate without typos this time. Christ is risen. Amen. So, a couple days ago, Good Friday, my wife Kim sent me, uh, texted me a, a, an article, an editorial um, that she'd stumbled upon, and it was an editorial in which the writer was comparing the mood in the United States with what happened on Good Friday. And the opening lines of it, it's a, it's a really well-written uh, editorial, but the opening lines of it were so profound, I wanted to share them with you. The writer said this, If there is any year when Good Friday fits our national mood, it is this one. We are a country with so much fresh grief. If there is any year 
when Good Friday fits our national mood, it is this one. Never before have we uh, needed, I think, to hear the good news that Jesus rose from the dead. Never before have we needed to remind ourselves in quite the same way that on Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, it was the undoing of death. Never before have we needed to know the good news that in the end, death loses and resurrection life wins. Our passage this morning that we're going to actually be talking about is from John 14. And in John 14, Jesus is preparing, he's up in the upper room with his disciples, and he's preparing them for the season to come, the days to come, and when he will be arrested and crucified and lying in a tomb, when he is sure his disciples are going to be confused and angry and hurt and wounded. They're going to have questions. So he's preparing them. And by the time we get to the passage I'm going to read in just a second, Judas has already left to go and betray Jesus to the religious leaders who will then turn him over to the Romans who will then crucify him. And Peter has already said, I will, I will die for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. In fact, before dawn the next day, you're going to deny even knowing me three times. And so into this anxiety, into this concern, into this fear, doubts, possible questions that are coming their way, Jesus speaks a word and he begins what we call in John's gospel the farewell discourse. From John 14, verses 1 to 7. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas, one of the disciples, said, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is Jesus saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Because I am, as Hebrews later puts it, the exact representation of God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Most of us, when we've heard these words in the past from John 14, have probably thought or been taught to think that what Jesus is saying there is that I am going to go die and be resurrected and go to heaven and I'm going to pre prepare a place for you for when you die so you can go and live in heaven. And while that is true, that is part of what Jesus does, I do not believe, I do not think that is what Jesus is talking about here. It includes that, but I think he's talking about something in the here and now. He is preparing something for us in the here and now. But what does any of this have to do with the resurrection. There are many pictures of resurrection in the pages of Scripture. One of my favorite ones comes from the Old Testament. It's the, uh, the book of Ezekiel. The prophet has a vision of a valley of dry bones, and God breathes into them and raises them to life, a vast army. Picture of resurrection. It's also a picture of returning from exile, which we'll get to in a moment. Or I think of the book of Jonah. Jonah is three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus even uses that image to talk about his own resurrection. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. It's a picture of resurrection. And then I think in the New Testament we have images as well. And one of my favorite ones is uh, from Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this parable, most of you have probably heard in some form or another, but a man has two sons, and the younger son, the irresponsible one, the one who likely got away with everything the older son never got away with, older siblings, can you identify? 
He comes to the father and says, please give me my share of the inheritance. The father gives it to him. He goes off and he blows it all in a foreign country and, and he's destitute. And he's lying in the mud among the pigs. And then Jesus says this. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father. Go back home. I want you to hear that. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he does this. He gets up and he goes back home to his father. But apparently his father, at least some of the time, was outside looking at the horizon to see if this might be the day his son comes home. And one day he looks and he sees him far away and he runs to his son. And he grabs him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And then he throws him a party. And the older son does not like this one bit. He's the one who did the responsible thing. He stayed. He's been faithful. This is unjust. This is unfair. And so he goes to his father to complain that treating his younger brother this way is unfair. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate And be glad because this brother of yours, here it is, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Themes of resurrection, death and resurrection, and we'll see themes of exile being sent away and coming home again also are all within this parable. And I think when I think about this past year, there is a sense of exile that we have experienced from things we love, from things we value. We've been distanced from them. And we want to come home. Barna Research did um, a survey a couple of months into the pandemic last year. And they discovered that 32% of people who identify as strong, practicing Christians have not worshipped online in their church or any other church since the start of the pandemic. That was just the first couple of months before people were really meeting in person again. And people have gone on to say, this looks to us like these people just drifted off. They're not coming back. Some are saying only two-thirds of what we used to have in church on a Sunday will actually come back to church. Now, I don't know if that's true. It remains to be seen. But I do believe that the pandemic and a lot of other things this year will have an impact on church attendance and mostly a negative impact. And so maybe we've been in exile. And exile is one of the most prominent themes in all of Scripture. Exile, the exile that we talk about most, was, took place a few hundred years before Jesus' death and resurrection. God sent all of his... Hello, Fitz twins. Not you? Which one, Where's the baby? I want to at least say hi to the baby. I said hi to the wrong baby. Back there? There. Hi, baby. <laughs> they're sent into exile in Babylon, and when, they, when they're sent into, into Babylon, they're there because they have disobeyed God, and they long to come home again. And when they're sent into Babylon, they're sent away from the city of Jerusalem and they're sent away from the temple. And we think today, oh, God lives everywhere. But in their minds, God dwelt in the temple. So to be sent away from the temple or what's left of it, to be sent away from the temple in their minds is to be sent away, to be exiled away from God. It's heartbreaking. Exile, however, is also tied to the Exodus. They're very similar. The Exodus, hundreds of years before, the people of God were enslaved in Egypt. And God sent Moses to deliver them through the wilderness, through the Red Sea, and into the Promised Land. You could say that the Exodus is sort of the first exile, and the exile is sort of the second Exodus. They're very much tied together. And those images continue into the New Testament, too. 
So as we get toward the end, near the very end of our Old Testaments, God speaks to the prophets, and the prophets speak to the people who are in exile and tells them that uh, God is going to end their punishment and bring them home. So in Zephaniah chapter uh, 3, verse 20, God says this, After that time I will gather you. At that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth, and when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. It is this image of coming back home that intrigues me this year, when so many of us have been away from faith, away from physical presence, from the things we love. Past year feels to me, maybe it does to you as well, as if we've been wandering in the wilderness, and some of us, no doubt, may have wandered away from God and his people, away from faith and community. Some of us, maybe for more of us, it might feel a bit like homesickness at times. The themes of exodus and exile are also found in the New Testament. John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River is a reenactment of the people coming from exile and re-entering the promised land. He meets them there to baptize them so they can restore the covenant with God and re-enter and start over in the promised land. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Jesus, as it were, represents Israel when he goes into the water and, as it were, repents on their behalf and he enters in to the promised land and takes Israel with him and us. Pictures of exile and restoration. And, of course, the death and resurrection of Jesus have the power to restore their and our relationships with God. Back to John 14, verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Now, when we hear this language of my father's house, many of us probably think, oh, he means he's going to heaven to prepare a place for us to go when we die. But that is not how these people in the first century would have heard him saying this. When he said my father's house, he meant the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. And again, the temple is where God dwelt. Jesus is saying, I am preparing you a dwelling place in the temple where God dwells. Only it gets a little more complicated. Because in John chapter 2, a few chapters earlier, Jesus has gone in and he has what we call cleansed the temple. He's overturned the tables of the money changers. He's chased the animals out. And the religious leaders challenge him and they want to know, will you give us a sign to prove to us that you have the authority to do these things? Jesus answers in John 2, 19. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And John tells us there that what he was referring to was his own body. But even his disciples didn't realize this until after he'd been raised from the dead. So Jesus has now taken the temple in Jerusalem where God was believed to have dwelled. And he said, no, now I am the temple where God dwells. Now I want to know, is there a connection between Jesus welcoming, preparing a place for us in his father's house, the temple, and the fact that Jesus has now become the temple. I think there is. Jesus is preparing many rooms or dwelling places in God's house. There were actually small rooms in the temple for usually reserved for the priests or for the temple servants. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you, dwelling place for you in the temple where you can rest. But he can't mean the literal temple. Because he says himself, it's going to be destroyed. And it was destroyed in 70 AD. So what is he saying? He must mean something more. If the temple is where God dwelt in their mind, and now Jesus is the temple and where God dwells. When Jesus goes to prepare 
a place for us, a dwelling place. He's preparing a place for us, not just to enter into heaven when we die, but to live in him and in his kingdom now. On Good Friday and Easter, Jesus prepared a dwelling place for us, in him and in his kingdom now, not just in the hereafter. On Good Friday and Easter, Jesus prepared a place for all of us to dwell in him and in his unshakable kingdom now and in the hereafter. It gets even more beautiful. A little further down in John 14, Jesus says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them, and we will make our home with them. So not only, I hope you caught that, not only are we invited to dwell in Christ and in His kingdom, we are told if we obey the teaching of Jesus that the Father and the Son will dwell with us. It's a mutual indwelling. This is, this is home like we've never dreamed of before. Perhaps... You're worshiping with us this morning in person or online, and you have been wandering. Maybe you're here because you felt obligated. It's Easter Sunday, but you're not, you're not quite there yet. You don't know what. Maybe this year has caused you to have doubts. Maybe the grief has caused you to have doubts. Maybe you've forgotten your own need of a spiritual home, a place of faith and hospitality and grace, a community where you can belong. Or maybe you're here and your heart's just not in it. You have an internal wandering going on. Put another way, maybe you're homesick for something better, something more beautiful and true. And when I think of this theme of homesickness, you can find it in several quotes, but the one that I go to most quickly is from a poet named, uh, Catholic poet named Rainer Maria Rilke who wrote poetry a, a hundred years or so ago. And he's a very interesting poet. He's not always easy to read. It's it's very complex. He uses metaphors and strange images to talk about God. But this is the one that comes to mind for me. Speaking of God, he says, I love you, O gentlest of ways, who ripened us as we wrestled with you. You, the great homesickness we could never shake off. That longing that is within us for something better, for home that we were made for. We don't know where it is. We may not know how to get there, but somehow something inside of us tells us it's there, that we were made for more than this, and we just need to go home. I don't know everything that Rilke meant by this poem, and if you read the rest of the poem, it's pretty wacky. I don't know everything he meant, but I think he meant something at least similar to what St. Augustine means. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Restlessness and homesickness are exile. We long to be somewhere else. We're restless because we're made for something better. We can't find the way, but we now find that in the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has made a way for us to go home, and he has shown us the way to go home. It's like, again, in the parable of the prodigal son, The son goes home as if in exile, goes home to his father. Father throws him a party. The older son is jealous and comes and complains. And once again, this is what the father said. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. This picture of both death and resurrection and exile and return from exile, of coming home. 
Back again to John 14. In verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me so that you also may be where I am. When, when Jesus says this, he's not talking about going to heaven when we die. He's talking about in, when I go away from you, when I am put to death and rest in the tomb, I will come back. I will come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am now. In him, in his kingdom. Christ has created a way into the kingdom of God now. He is inviting us to dwell in Him even as He and the Father dwell in us. And there are many types of death and exile, both metaphorical and real, that we face. But there is one way to abundant life. There is one way to come home, and that is through Jesus. So for many of us, much of this past year, I think, may have seemed as if we were wandering in the wilderness far from God or what we thought God was like in exile. So if you have felt scattered or isolated or distant, Jesus invites you to come home and to respond to the invitation, whatever that might look like for you. If, if this whole thing is new for you, and you've never experienced a relationship with Christ, you don't even know what to make of the resurrection, I invite you to just explore it. If you're interested in exploring it, go to ecclife.net slash connect, click on the communication card link, and tell us in that that you want to know more about what it means to know and follow Jesus, and we will reach out to you. Or if you don't want to do that, send us an email at prayer at ecclife.net. That goes just to the pastors, and we will reach out to you and help you walk through this and answer some questions. Even if you have doubts and concerns, do it. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. With your doubts, with your struggles, even with your sins, you are welcome here. And we will help you wrestle with these things. And then, if you're so moved, we would love to have you begin to join us on a regular basis. As next week, we start a new sermon series entitled The Hope of Glory. As this resurrection life comes alive in us, as it transforms us, and we begin uh, to have an impact on our family, our neighbors, our friends, our community, we are then the presence of Christ in the world. We are the presence of Christ in our community. We are sent out to be agents of change and redemption, and that's what we're going to be looking at in this next series, starting next week. And as we have done this entire year so far, we invite you, if you would like to, to join us in reading along in a book by James Bryan Smith, The Good and Beautiful Community, as he explores and as we explore with him this idea of being present, Christ's presence in the world and in our community. You don't have to read the book to take part, but we welcome you to do that if you would like to. As I think about it, there is one way to botch the resurrection, in a sense. And it's really a very personal thing. You botch the resurrection in your own life when you ignore it. You botch the resurrection in your own life when you ignore it. In some ways, I have more respect for people who have investigated it and decided to reject it than I do for people who simply ignore it like it doesn't matter. It makes all the difference in the world which one and which way you go. Don't ignore the resurrection. <clears throat> to whatever degree that you can uh, come and be a part of us and that we can journey with you in the coming weeks, we invite you to join us here in worship in person or online every Sunday. And I pray that you'll be able to do that. I'm going to close with a prayer as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. And this prayer is found in that Bible app live event. It is from the Book of Common Prayer and it is for a prayer for Easter Sunday. 
Would you pray with me as we close and compare our hearts to take part in Holy Communion together? Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting life, grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection may be raised from, the de from death caused by sin by your life-giving Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.